Howdy. I'd like to just take a second to thank all my wonderful patrons and listeners for continuing with me as I become a better podcaster and learn more about sound and develop this podcast. And it's been completely different from what we did last season. So I'm very, very grateful for the listeners who continue as my content has changed to listen with us while we make it through this pandemic. If anyone is interested in supporting me, a good place to look is my Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Rambler. There's an underscore between the and Rambler. That again is patreon.com slash the underscore Rambler. I do also post free content there. It's a very good place to keep up with me and find my other social media links. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. And if you're a new listener, welcome. Howdy y'all, just a quick note before I start the show. This is going to be the last episode before I take a hiatus for about a month or so. I will be back and I will be posting announcements on both my Patreon and my Twitter and my Instagram. Uh, So there will be places to check around January 23rd or 27th is when I'm thinking of releasing the next episode. But I will make an update in the meantime to make sure you guys all know what's going on. Uh, Hope everyone has wonderful holidays and uh, hope you enjoy the next part of this interview. Peace. And I mean, like, it's, like I said, like our society... is so hyper-dependent and traditionally, especially for indigenous people and black people too, right? Like, cause they're, they're indigenous, like, and they come from indigenous communities. Like it's community was what really kind of helped us survive. And we've, as I see, like, especially with everything that's going on politically with the tribes, right? You know, a lot of indigenous people are leaving you know the reservations or they don't have a res to go to like i like i mentioned earlier you know a lot of us are forced outside for one reason or another and when you get forced outside you start creating like entirely new social lives um they take you further away so on and so forth but also like you know we just in general don't live as communally as we do and it opens us up all all these different experiences opens us up for um all this abuse, particularly financial abuse is what I, I found. Like you were talking about your friend and how, you know, he was holding money over their head and things like that. Mm-hmm. And they get disparaged. Like it's, it's, it's a strict, it's a strategy. It's a strategy. And like, if we had these communities intact, if we had our traditional communities intact, if we had our land intact, if we had our sovereignty intact, we would have, you know, more space for all of these individuals from that are dealing with all these really abusive relationships or experiences to come back to, you know, and it's just like an empty, it's become like this, it's not an empty hole, but it just seems like it's a, it's a hole that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because of all of the other external factors Mm -hmm. that are happening with like land movement, you know, industrialization, the politics that we see today, like, you know, it's, we're moving farther and farther away from our communal values. We like to, but we like to, you know, parade them around, you know, and show, show them off. But like when it put, when it comes to putting the, you know, your money where your mouth is, like, I can tell you right now, a lot of queer and trans indigenous people that I know, like their families rejected them or like, it just becomes, you know, their families are so toxic, like, they can't be around them, like, you may not outwardly say, hey, I hate you, that's your trans, or queer, or whatever, but, like, they'll still throw out microaggressions that make it very difficult to live with somebody. I mean, both, all three of my sisters and I ended up homeless because of 
abuse, you know, and nobody in our family came to bat for us. They came to try to make excuses and make us placate the abuser. And I was straight up like, no, fuck that. And you, you know what I mean? Like, we don't deserve this and nobody deserves this. But now my sister is 20 years old. She's pregnant. She's living in one room in an apartment, you know, and that's better than having no roof over her head. But for two weeks, she was also taking care of our other sister who had just been made homeless because of the same perpetuated violence that nobody in my family really wants to get a grip on, apparently, except for me, which makes me the jerk somehow. Because I'm like, uh, but have y'all considered that this is wrong? Yeah. I'm the crazy person, though. Whatever. Yeah. It's whatever. It's whatever. It's whatever. They can be like that if they like. Mm-hmm. But why is it that just like when I was 17, I am now 27 trying to find homes and stable living for my younger siblings and my sister julian is lucky because my grandparents took her in and when it happened to Jaden, my dad was separated from my mom so our dad could take her in but i had to live in the basement of a friend Mm. like my friend's mom like i send her mother's day presents and birthday presents let me live in their basement for a year because i was just like a scared homeless kid Mm -hmm. and there should have been more for me And there should have been more for you. I don't think that our lives would have been the same had our need for stability not been attached to having to have a man around. Yeah. Or some sort of partner because even queer people end up facing a lot of housing discrimination but also a lot of domestic partner violence because it's really hard to split up when you're worried that your partner's not going to get an apartment because they're also gay. Yeah. But also... When queer people oftentimes are discriminated for jobs, and also that oftentimes intersects with disability, because when you're poor, you get sick and you have a harder time healing, mm-hmm. then you just end up in this constantly perpetuated cycle of being stuck with another human being as you guys tear each other apart because you have no other financial option. Yep, yep. And it's. And you, yeah. I'm sorry. And it's just. <laughs> It's just, like, it's a story that is too similar for too many people like us. Like, if we sat in a room of other black and native women and we were like, how many of you have been homeless or just about homeless? Mm-hmm. It would be way too many. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's really unfortunate that trying to find any kind of housing security, food security, too, like, mm-hmm. all of those things, like, it always, it always requires, like, being in debt to other people and like you know a lot, some people do genuinely give do mm-hmm. genuinely give and you know I really appreciate those people like it wasn't that wasn't my experience like for the majority of my life like the reason why I ended up being so hyper you know independent was because like it, charity was always transactional mm-hmm. like your your livelihood depended on you know placating whoever it was that was giving you that charity and that charity would just be like basic housing or like basic food or like basic respect Mm -hmm. it's really it's really sad and so it's like okay well fuck this like when you and when you do get sick of it and you do try to work within the system to find another solution like your one sister who ended up getting that one bedroom apartment Mm -hmm. like you know then you have to worry about all of these other external factors criminalizing that because Mm -hmm. what I found with, you know, my child custody 
issues and or battle and like hearing other women's stories or other parents stories with their kids like you know (sighs) the courts they really don't give a fuck like they want you know they specifically want like when I when I was started getting involved in my child custody battle like I was talking to my lawyer and like I was homeless like I didn't have a tiny house yet I didn't know what I was doing I couldn't I couldn't rent anywhere so and for those um, of you who don't know Kima was living in a camper through like a full winter with her infant for a while and some of you may have heard my previous season where I ranted about RVs and campers these are not the people I'm talking about because there are folks who live in trailers and in mobile homes permanently simply because they have no access to anything else and if we're if we're gonna be honest we can also talk about how tiny houses are basically really nice souped up double wides and I would know because I've lived in a double wide before and I'm not ashamed to be associated with living in trailers even if they're fancy trailers yeah. You know? Yeah. And the thing is, is that this gentrification of them is now also making affordability of tiny homes and of mobile homes not accessible to the people who really actually need them as last resorts for survival. Like, people like you, mm-hmm. you actually need this as a way to provide stability for yourself. And mm-hmm. the prices on these are now climbing to be astronomical. Oh, for yeah. a 400 square foot box oh yeah oh yeah like i mean living it so living in the camper you know i lived in the camper for eight eight months and um i lived in the camper for eight months like and it it it, it was it wasn't the fanciest thing it was a little bit older but it got the job done you know but it was a lot of labor it's mm-hmm. very campers can be very labor um intensive especially if you know you don't have sewage hookup which i didn't so i had to get like a blue boy dump the dump the tanks and then drag it up the hill which you know i'm only like five foot two (laughs) and i'm strong but it gets old when you're doing it twice a week so there was that and then you know i had to constantly refill the propane tanks like the propane in the winter in the summer it was fine in the winter i had to fill those joints up like once, twice a week, at least, if not more, depending on how cold it got. And, and then, propane like, is so expensive. We're converting my house to having a wood-burning stove because, yeah. like, throwing down the money now to put in the wood-burning stove is going to be cheaper than propane for the entire winter. And that's going to be building the platform, putting in the ductwork, the purchase of the <laughs> stove, and buying wood for the winter. It's still going to be less, you know? And I just... I believe it. I don't think people realize that poor rural people actually have a lot of really high expenses, which is why it's hard to get people like us out of poverty because one, jobs are not as accessible, and two, utilities literally drag us to hell because it's so expensive to get electricity out in the middle of nowhere or to get propane for your heat or even to get internet if you live in the middle of the mountains. We paid an outrageous amount just for Wi-Fi when I was living Mm -hmm. And Pikeville, because it was the only internet company for literally the entire region. Yep. And I just, people don't realize how expensive it is to be poor. It doesn't. And it's like, you know, I I have a, I have a, like, when COVID first hit, I was going in really hard on that because I was telling, because there's a lot of people that were shaming and and policing people, like, if you're not seeing them 24-7, you're a terrible person, like, all these things. And I'm like, 
okay, but what about all the people who don't have a choice, like the frontline workers? Yes, of course, but also like for some of us that rely on grabbing propane on mm -hmm. a weekly basis just to stay warm, like, you know, things like that, like convenience if you can afford conveniences, you're only ever going to build wealth, mm -hmm. all right? Like, if you don't have access to conveniences, like you said, it's going to keep pushing you back, and it's going to be that much harder. Like, it's it's just the system. It's just the system, system being designed perfectly to force you to aspire to, you know, classism, to elitism in order to like live a happy life to survive and things like that. And if you, and if you don't aspire to that, if you're not going to go with the flow of the system, then it's going to weed you out. It's going to give you, you know, you're going to be more tired. You're going to have more health issues. You're going to have, you know, this, that, and the other, like it's going to weed you out and it's going to kill you. And that's why people keep saying like, this is systematic and mm -hmm. others, you know, keep rebuttaling back against that. But but yeah, like back to your back to your point about like the campers and the tiny houses. So I was living in the camper for like eight months and don't get me wrong, like I was thankful that I was warm and like, you know, I had a place for my daughter and I, but <clears throat> it just wasn't going to be a long term solution. Mm -hmm. That and it wasn't my camper, so I felt bad, you know. So I was like, All right, after looking at all the finances, I was like, my only option, my really my only option is to try to do the tiny house and like I don't know how I'm going to afford land in the future to put the tiny house on. I don't know where I'm going to be able to move it, all this shit. But, like, all I know is that getting this tiny house is going to be cheaper than renting somewhere. And I'm not going to be able to get a regular house, so, like, fuck it. And so I started looking around, and, like, like you said, like, they were they were still quite expensive. Like, yeah. I mean, unless you're getting a really small one, which I couldn't, I couldn't do, like, because I was like, well, if I'm going to invest in this, I need it to be able to be sturdy. I needed to be able to house my child who's growing and my cat and myself. I don't give a fuck about a partner because, like, fuck them. Mm -hmm. You know, I just needed something that will carry my daughter and I going forward. And <clears throat> so I had to get at least a 24 to a 28 foot, and I managed to do that, but, like, it was quite costly, and I had to take out a loan for it. Mm -hmm. And the only way I was able to take out the loan was convincing my ex to co-sign with me. Which was like, you know, I didn't want to do it, but I didn't have any choice because I kept getting rejected for the loans. I don't make enough money. Mm -hmm. All of my credit is tied up in the fucking mortgage in the house that I no longer live at, mm -hmm. you know, just the debt that he stuck me with, mm -hmm. you know. So um, that was the only way I was even able to get it was, again, relying on a man's higher socioeconomic class mm -hmm. relying on his money in order to secure housing and he agreed to it because he was like all right well I, I get to keep the house so like you can have this I said okay right you know and like a lot of those shows tiny house nation um so on and so forth they feature a lot predominantly white people oh yeah um you get these really like decked out tiny houses they're beautiful and like you know, they, they build these really cool things and it's like, well, those shows don't go over all of the other logistics that go into a tiny house because like, like I talked about in my Patreon, I started doing a series about like the whole process and breaking down like how, how you can get it and like things you have to consider. And in it, I'm talking about how like you really have to plan carefully where are you going to put it? Like, is it going to be a long-term? Are you going to have long-term, you know, uh, placement? Are you going to take it on the road? Because depending on those two options, 
you may or may not have other things to account for. So for me, just as an example, like I, um, luckily I'm, I'm able to stay here for another five years, hopefully, <laughs> as long as I don't do anything terrible to get kicked off, which is a constant fear, but, um, uh, because of the fact that I'm stationary for at least five years, I had to come up with a solution for my gray water because my tank on the tiny house was smaller than the camper, surprisingly. And like, yeah, with having, which would mean more trips. And I now have a washer and dryer, which Mm. was fantastic. I didn't have that in the camper, but that means more water. So like more water you use, the more trips you have to take, blah, blah, blah. And I can't do that with having my baby full time. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, it's too much. Like, packing her up and going up and down and then she's sleeping it's just too much so i had to invest in a gray water filtration system which is awesome like you know you get to reuse water like most american households waste up to like forty thousand gallons of water every year so Mm -hmm. i have potential of recycling that much it's great but i had to it was it wasn't cheap no it wasn't cheap And then not only wasn't it cheap, like when it got here, I had to build it. I had to, it didn't come pre-built. You had to build it. And then once I built it, I had to set up, set it up to the tank. So I had to get, get, go to home, uh, to the Lowe's and get all the parts for it. It was just a whole fucking process, mm-hmm. a whole fucking process. And so not only that, but like you have to get the skirting for it for any, I mean, you yeah. know this mm-hmm. <laughs> to winterize your RVs or your campers, you have to get skirting and, um, Again, skirting, unless you try to do, like, a DIY type, type of deal, it's very expensive. Yeah. So there's a lot of additional costs on top of the cost from whoever your builder is, mm-hmm. you know? It's a lot. It's a lot of money. You, you have to have a lot of privilege mm-hmm. just to make it happen. Which is <sighs> wild, because originally they were supposed to be a solution to our housing crisis, And uh, I will still be posting links on this, but a lot of reservations in inner cities are now using very basic tiny homes in order Mm -hmm. to help house and sustain their populations. But as they are becoming, again, more gentrified, it's going to make it harder for the communities that really need them to create sustainability to have access to them. So, you know, I just, I don't have any criticisms for people because I don't know everybody's life circumstances but I do want people to think critically about how they consume and the result of that consumption. Mm-hmm. Because in a few years when this trend is over, there will be tiny houses on the side of the road for sale for less than $5,000. Like, I guarantee you, as soon as this trend is over, mm-hmm. there is going to be a surplus of them left over. Which will be great, except for the human beings who had to suffer through houselessness and possibly death as a result of houselessness for the next five, ten years until that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, like, it's not even going to account for all the people who are stuck with tiny houses. Because, like, right now, because, you know, it's being gentrified and people are starting to, like, really catch on to the trend, like, a lot of people, white people specifically, are working with their local governments to try to create um, workarounds or new policies for where they can place land. Like right now I'm part of a uh, Virginia 
uh, tiny house group where they're doing just that. Like they're calling the zoning um, agencies, they're petitioning the counties and the states to try to get them to agree to let to let you know tiny house communities build up, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like it's only because white people took an interest in these uh, these builds <laughs> that policy is just now being. Uh, reworked or considered mm-hmm. right so it's like if they do lose interest if they do lose interest in the next coming years like and these policies are never done like there's going to be tons of you know black indigenous or other people who not only have tiny houses but rvs or campers or what have you who like you said they really needed this they're gonna be parked illegally mm-hmm. you know that's one of the biggest issues with tiny houses right now is find, finding legal parking because if you park illegally you're either going to be forced to move or you're going to be fined a lot and a lot of us who are choosing these avenues for housing we can't afford to be fined and i can't afford to move mm-hmm. i don't have i don't have like a 350 truck to move this damn tiny house like wherever i stay i'm staying mm-hmm. for a minute you know mm-hmm. But, and not only that, like for, for single parents who are working or going towards this option, like it, the court system becomes another anxiety too, because if you're constantly moving and you're in a, and you're in a custody battle, that doesn't look good to the judges. It's just going to be nope. like, well, this, yeah, this parent, this parent is stable. They, they're in the marital residence. Like you're the one moving around. That's not stable for the child. So we're going to take your child out of full custody and give it to the other parent. Well, Your Honor, I, I was a victim of narcissistic abuse and this, that, and the other, and I don't think, like, it's a good idea for the child to be in his care full-time, blah, blah, blah. Well, ma'am, we don't give a fuck. <laughs> we don't give a fuck. Like, they don't they don't see it. They don't understand. I've, I've come to realize they really don't understand all of these, um, you know, how, how their, their own system and their own decisions are forcing people's hands, mm-hmm. you know? And not only that, but, like, even being in a tiny house and being in a camper, when I was in the camper, that was my biggest fear because in my custody battle, C- CPS ended up getting involved um, on his end. But the the rebuttal was, like, well, she's in a camper. She's in a camper. How is that? How is she a fit mother when she can't even afford an apartment? You know, like yeah, you were accused of being a bad parent just because you were a poor parent and a mother who decided not to stay in a place where she was being abused. Right. Which is <laughs> wild because if something bad happened to your child in that house and you were there and didn't stop the abuse because you were also being abused, you would still go to jail for that because that happens to many women who are the survivors of domestic abuse is they were mm-hmm. charged right alongside the men who beat them and their children simply yep. because the system refuses to acknowledge A, that single moms need help to be single, or B, that just because a man is married doesn't mean that he's a good man. And yet, these right. situations literally happen every single day. And oh, either way you slice it, it ends up in the jailing of black and brown moms for no reason other than being poor, and survivors of of abuse. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just there's so many structural structural entities, you know, that are just constantly bombarding you with anxiety. And like you know, again, like <laughs> like the anxiety that displaced Indigenous, Black, Brown, uh, people of color, color, all all of these individuals, trans, queer 
um, who are parents, like, it's just, it's just so much more anxiety. Like, I, simply because I had a child with somebody, and because of the fact I don't have intergenerational wealth, and because of the fact, like, my, my family and my people were displaced or whatever, like, I can't, I have no free will. I can't go where I please. Like, I have, I have family and I have friends that I can easily move, move in with. You know, that would let me park my tiny house on it and be like, hey, you know, here you go. Like, you know, they'll take me in without all of the transactional nature to it, right? Mm -hmm. But the courts will come back and be like, you can only move within 20 miles of the other parent if you share custody. So it's like, no matter what you do, no matter what you do, no matter, it's like, no matter if I, I made more money and be like, and I told them like, well, hey. So the court, it's like, hey, I'm having trouble surviving here. I can't afford this area. I need to go to a lesser, like, you know, a lesser expensive area mm-hmm. so I can provide for my child. They're just going to criminalize that, too. It's so much more anxiety. It's anxiety, like, in the present. It's anxiety for the future. You know, all of these things. It's Well, also, it's, people always make those, well, why don't you just statements and you are giving literally a full and complete reason as to why you just have it because it's not like you don't just want to have more autonomy or more freedom or more space from your abusive situation people for real look at poor people and single moms in tough situations and go well you must have wanted this no 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 nobody wants this type of constant stress every day like that's just not reasonable to assume that anybody is like hopeful that every day is hard you know oh absolutely dude when i when i first left my ex like and you know as you know narcissists will do like he you know he, he tried to convince people like oh she just she just wasn't in love with me and like you know she tried to put it all on me and people are like well you know you just you just want to hurt him or you just want to do this or you just want to do that and it's like do you really think i would have moved excuse me, out of a relatively good-sized house with food and a bedroom for my daughter and living, you know, a a fairly comfortable life to being in a less than 300-square-foot space where I have no laundry, I have no stove. Like, I was cooking out of an Instant Pot for three fucking, I mean, not three months, eight months. Mm -hmm. Like, do you think I would make that drastic change? Do you think I would leave everything? I left my cats behind for a couple of months because I couldn't bring them in. Like, and and those are my babies. Like, I had to wait in order to get them in here, you know? So I was like, do y'all really think I would have done all of this? Why would I do all this? This makes no sense. Yeah. But... (laughs) yeah like nobody nobody wakes up one day and is like you know I think I'll set my life on fire because everything is perfect and it just sounds like a really great idea to be homeless (laughs) right around now like nobody is like you know gee whiz I think today I'm gonna create housing and food instability for me and my small child like exactly it's just these things happen so much and then everybody points fingers and wants to blame people as if you're not already blaming yourself and doing everything you desperately can yes. to change your situation but you're just you just get knocked down repeatedly exactly it's it's sad and i mean you know i i foresee especially with everything going on politically like you know with the whole especially with the whole biden trump thing like unless Unless there's extreme change in the political sphere, 
I, I, you know, I've predicted for a long time, like, no matter who's president, Republican or Democrat, they're, they, they don't traditionally honor sovereignty. And capitalists, as they are, are going to just keep making our land, trying to steal our lands and make mm-hmm. our lands smaller and smaller and smaller, disenfranchising our people more and more and more. And the more that, that happens, we're going to see more indigenous people displaced, you know, either being urbanized or going rural or being landless, mm-hmm. you know, like some of the tribes here mm-hmm. and a lot. And I, and I think a lot of Indian country, like, you know, they don't think about all these things like, and this ties back to what we were talking about earlier with the tribal government, you know, mm-hmm. all these decisions being made, these convers, these violent conversations that are happening, these, this, this stubbornness, to not address some of the underlying, um, you know, dynamics that are going on. A lot of it, I see, uh, as an Eastern Woodlands person, I see a lot of these scenarios escalating, and I see a lot of, you know, Indian country transforming in towards something that Eastern Woodlands people are today. Mm-hmm. You know, if that makes sense, like, <laughs> yeah, just, just disenfranchised in a different way. Like, there's obviously their own disenfranchisement out there, but it's going to look a little bit different, you know. And as, that's, as... It, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but <laughs> I think that's uh, one of the things that I tweet a lot about is how pan-Indianism is very destructive because it takes mm-hmm. away the autonomous histories of tribal people. And mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, is that, so some of us have been dealing with resistance and forced assimilation and land grabbing for much longer and we're for real just out here, like, trying to tell other people further west, like, yo, prepare yourselves, because they're coming for you, too, and they did this to us. And they're like, nah, you're too black for us to listen to you. <laughs> yeah. And that's literally what it is. That's yeah, literally yeah. what it is. The further the tribe goes west, the more anti-black they get. <laughs> and we deal with a yeah. lot of shit from our own people here, so it's astounding that it could get worse. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like, it's the Cassandra metaphor, right? Like mm-hmm. you're trying, you're trying to warn people about something that you've already experienced that you know is going to happen. Dynamics that you see being replicated left and right, and they're just not listening. So you're just like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do, right? Like, I, what I want for Indian country, I want us to get stronger. I want us to unify, and I really want us to move towards being autonomous sovereign beings again i really do want that like and i i really wish we could get out of these circular arguments and conversations we keep happening but it takes a lot of humility like especially Mm -hmm. like with anti-blackness for example like a a lot of the conversations i see in my own community like it's just it always ties back to the one person's ego it's like if you could just if you could just humble your ego for a second, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> just humble your ego for a second, like, the fact that, you know, our relatives are darker skin, like, what does that matter? Like, there's still, you're, you're, you, if, if you, you know our people's history of oppression and colonization, and you're enacting it onto, you're projecting it onto them. It's kind of like, you know, I guess, colonized people, or not even colonized people, just people who have been abused, sometimes when there's those unhealed wounds, mm-hmm. When they still exist, they just end up projecting it onto somebody else because they want to feel powerful again. And for me, like, that's just, Mm -hmm. that's something that can be solved with a lot of ego work, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's, I feel like 
coming back to our communal values, like that there would be a rediscovery of that, you know, just kind of like chill, be humble. Like not everything has to be a power dynamic. It can mm-hmm. just be a conversation. Yeah. And especially out West and especially in conversations about anti-blackness, like people are like, well, you know, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not racist, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, you know what? Let's just have a conversation. I'm not, I'm just trying to talk to you about my experience. Yeah. Or like my cousin's trying to talk to you about their experience, like what we've seen. It doesn't have to be a power struggle. It could just be a conversation. Get humble. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing is like, I think that one of the reasons that I've really on purpose stopped using jargon and now only deliver these concepts in like a normal way is because I want to empower normal people to be able to understand the feelings that they have that are really complicated, that are oftentimes introduced to us in academia, which is one of the privileges of academia, is having the words to be able to describe things and theories that were always affecting you, but you just didn't have the language to address. And to Mm -hmm. give that back to the people who are really being hurt by it. Mm-hmm. And those are not the people who are the educated or the white passing or the ones who are men or the ones who fulfill respectability politics. Mm-hmm. Those are not the people who need it because they already have other privileges. Mm-hmm. And so, in talking to other Native people, obviously you've watched over the couple of years the whole rigmarole I've gone through with even so much as introducing the concept of anti-blackness to Indian country. And a lot of people are like, are you really crediting yourself with that? And I'm like, I really hate to tell you this, but this happens to black people and women all the time. We're out of the goodness of our own hearts. We just mentioned some shit that we already done been known about. And then other people take it and said that they knew about it first, but they also ruin it. So no, I'm not saying I invented colorism. I'm just saying that I grew up in a pan-African community where we discussed this concept a lot. So I have a pretty good handle on it. I'm a light-skinned black woman, so I've had to really think about my privileges and how they can be weaponized against other members of my community and why I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's also how I try to present it to other people. Is like, you have the option to use your powers for good, and here's mm-hmm. how. But you really have to take a look at yourself in the mirror and be like, two things can be true. I can be privileged for a light-skinned black woman and still not be white-passing enough to have the privilege of whiteness. I am one of those people who exists in that ambiguity space. Mm -hmm. And it's different than other people's experience with blackness. And it's different than other people's experience with nativeness. But we do exist, and those are still legitimate experiences, Mm -hmm. that do not mean that I'm not lucky because I also have an academic experience that most other black people don't have. Mm Mm-hmm. It's multifaceted. Like, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah, people remove the multifaceted, multifacetedness out of Indian country. Like, you know, especially with those who adhere to respectability politics. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, are you? Sometimes I look online and I see all this performativity and like people, you know, oh, this is sacred, that is sacred. Oh, like Skoden, you know. Uh, it, they just get like overly performative about shit or like talking about ceremony online and things like that. And then you got people like, oh, you're not supposed to do that. Or it's just, it's like when I, when I see a lot of what's going on in a lot of these discussions and a lot of the talking points or the ego that's preventing true unpacking of, of some of these topics mm-hmm. occurring, like, it's just like, I look at it and I'm like, are you really 
do you really believe you're such a, a one-dimensional being? Mm-hmm. Like, this is this all you are? Like, this is this is only your identity. There is this one saying by um, Miriam Hassan. Oh, what, what does she say? Um, I absolutely loved it, but uh, I can't remember verbatim what she said. But it was she was talking about how like. Um, don't make it was basically don't make one thing your identity mm-hmm. and, um and i i wish i remember seeing that and i was like i really wish indian country would fucking internalize this because mm-hmm. this is like our problem like we all think we're even aspiring to our own stereotypes at this point like and that's why we can't recognize that people can be mixed or people can be black or people can be i don't know filipino while also being indian and mm-hmm. or like or Af- african indigenous and north american indigenous like mm-hmm. they you people we're really limiting ourselves you know or or like the whole res urban dichotomy that pisses me off yeah. so much danny too because it's like that wasn't our experience here in the DMV. Like, no. like I just told, like I tell people, I'm like, look at the Piscataway. They're neither res nor urban nor mm-hmm. suburban nor rural. They're considered quote unquote landless. So where do they fit in that dichotomy? Right. It, like we keep, we keep pushing this one dimensional version of our own selves. And it's like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be that bitch. Like I'm a multifaceted person. I have a lot of ancestors. Mm-hmm. I have from all over. I have a lot of, you know, family who come from all over, who have different experiences. I have my own experiences. I've, I've, li- I've been on, you know, at the bottom rungs of poverty. I've been middle class. I went back to <laughs> poverty. I've, I worked all these places. Like I'm a whole lot of things. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us forget you can be a whole lot of things at once. You mm-hmm. can experience a whole lot of emotions at once. Mm-hmm. And part of mastering yourself and mastering, you know, uh, whether you want to call it enlightenment or sacredness or whatever the fuck, uh, a part of mastering all that is being able to hold all these things in the same container and being okay with it. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and I definitely try to impress upon people that what really radicalized me is that I was in food justice growing up my whole life. Mm-hmm. And I went from working on urban farms and guerrilla gardening in the inner city in Columbus where there's a lot of food deserts. We also are the third highest city for um, police brutality, for those of you who don't know. Uh, the North is not safe for black people. It's not, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I just want that to be known right now during this election so that people don't try to come at me incorrect. But... There, I did a lot of food justice, and then I had some distant relatives who are from Cheyenne River, which is a Lakota reservation, and I went out there to do a three-month internship as an 18-year-old where I did food justice stuff there, and what really radicalized me, and this is even before I got on my journey of reconnecting to my own Native ancestry, what really radicalized me and pissed me off was not the differences, it was the similarities. (laughs) Yes. And people are like, what do you mean? I'm like, res kids, hood black kids, food disparity, they're holding hands on that shit, and it's wrong, you know? Like, really, the reflection to me as somebody who, you know, when I moved out there, people were asking me if I was related to anybody because I can very easily, with my racial ambiguity, move between the two communities. The thing is, it's not that different. And people are so mad at me when my black Indian ass is like, you do realize that it be the same. 
Right. And people hate that. Because I'm like, oh, sounds like you have to relate to black people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a, just a note, I'm in my, I'm in my car because I gotta stop by the grocery store before I go pick up Ezzy. Um, we but... can, we can definitely close out and say goodbye then because I think we've been talking for an hour and almost 30 minutes, which is great. But also, <laughs> I know that that's too much for most people. No, girl, I, I could, I could keep going and going and going. But before we close out, um, you're, since you're talking about food insecurity, um, I just wanted people to, like I said, I'm, I, I was going to talk about Silver Aqua Farms at the beginning of the podcast, and Silver Aqua Farms cool. is a black indigenous uh, people of color farm. They're working on trying to like address a lot of these the agricultural racism, um, mm-hmm. you know, and housing for black and indigenous and people of color. Uh, so I think it's a really great project, but maybe we can talk more about it. I, I definitely recommend, um, uh, Chris Newman, uh, he's Sylvan Aqua Farms on Twitter. I don't know if you wanted to reach out to him. I'll talk to him and see if I can link you guys up, but I think you guys would have some really great conversations, especially about, you know, um, black and indigenous food and agricultural topics. I, I would really would- love that. Cause that's like. That's one of those niche nerd things that a lot of people don't know about me is that, like, I'm a peasant and proud. We're farmers all the way back. All my ancestors from southern Italy, also peasants. Everybody in my family, farmers. And I like it that way, and I'm not ashamed. And I'll talk plants all day with somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so it would, be, it would be really great. I think I'm going to try to leave you guys up. Um, and then all of your listeners, if they want to follow him on Twitter, they definitely can. I'll give you the... Uh, Yeah, and the thing is, is we can pick another topic and definitely have another interview. I just, I really appreciate you coming out and being honest with me about your story because talking about housing disparity is very trigger triggering. Like, it's triggering for me as somebody who has lived through it. And mm-hmm. but it is a very earnest and hard discussion that we need to recognize and talk about sooner rather than later because it's fallen by the wayside and it's very destructive to our community and it is of course if we're going to talk about land back we need to talk about those of us who have been made landless yes yes absolutely (laughs) absolutely and uh i also my last interview was with a trans femme black person who has a farm in virginia So I really have been focusing on areas that are neglected and oftentimes disrespected, especially Appalachia, because right now we're not paying attention to places in our country that have a lot of people. Mm -hmm. We are ignoring areas that make us uncomfortable because they have complicated intersections. Mm -hmm. And we need to stop doing that or we are not going to solve the real problems we have. And the fact of the matter is that being uncomfortable is not being unsafe. Like, you can just get over yourself and learn how to humanize people who are different from you. Exactly. Make them multidimensional. They're not one-dimensional beings. (laughs) Just build a longer table. It's a better party when there's more people there anyways. There is, and more food. Exactly. And you know that I want to get all the kinds of bread available. Me too. Absolutely. Mm. (laughs) 
I'm right, so well, glad. Yeah, I'm so glad we got to talk, and we should definitely just like chat more as homies. I'm like terrible at friendships, though. Me too. Uh, me too. Yeah, I think you have my number. You can te- you can text me anytime. Like it, cool. it might take me a while to respond, but I will respond. <laughs> I'll do it, but I'll do the same thing. I hope you have a really good day, and that uh, I don't know. I hope your baby has a good day because she's really cute, and I'm like a big fan. Um. <laughs> Thank you. I'm like, yeah, you tell her. Every time she sasses you on the camera, I'm like, tell her, Ezzy, whatever she, whatever you say. She's a spitfire for days, man. Like, I'm I'm very excited. I'm very excited for what trouble she's going to get us into and everything. Good. But, um, yeah, I'll bring, her, I'll bring her on the next call we have, and she, can, she can tell us something. I would love to have <laughs> her featured. Final thank yous and shout outs that I got to give to folks. I would really, of course, always like to thank Rain Blankman for making my theme music that I still use. They're really great and we've been friends for a long time. I'll be posting their information in the show notes so that you can look them up and if you like their music, hear more of what they do. Of course, I got to give a shout out to Amari because even though she might not be able to be as present with us these days for these episodes, she still helped me kick out and do a lot of the work to start this podcast in the first season. So I'm never going to forget that. And I hope that she's doing well. Our girl is right now trying to become a therapist and a counselor for disadvantaged people. So definitely send good vibes out to her because she's doing the Lord's work right now and COVID has only made it worse. I would also like to give a final shout out to Stories Podcast who has become one of my sponsors recently. And they are one of my Patreon supporters. And uh, basically they started doing that because I gave them a shout out on Twitter for having really good children's stories that also keep me engaged. I was the primary caregiver for my niece and nephew who are both under five last summer, and they really love those podcasts. So for those of you who are cramped at home with little folks during this quarantine time, I definitely suggest checking out that podcast. And I really appreciate them supporting me considering how big their podcast is and how little mine is. So that again is Stories Podcast. Go check it out.